0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. On July the 4th, 1791, 15 years after American independence, two men walked into a Virginia field. Only one walked out alive. John Crane, the son of an elite Virginia family, killed a man named Abraham Van Horn after the two men exchanged some heated words. Crane, as you might imagine, was indicted for murder. He was later tried in the case Commonwealth of Virginia v. Crane. He was arrested in the name of the law, but two decades earlier, he would have been detained in the name of the king. Why does this change matter? And what does it have to tell us about how Virginians and other Americans transformed their British identity into an American one? Nowadays, we take the phrase in the name of the law for granted. But citizens of the New Republic had to figure out what that meant. They had symbolically killed the king in the American Revolution, the king who was the fountain of justice, only to replace him with a Republic of Laws and not men yet it took time for those ideas to take root. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Jessica Lowe in her office at the University of Virginia School of Law. She helps us to understand why a seemingly unimportant murder mattered for how Americans learn to rule at home. In her new book, Murder in the Shenandoah, Making Law Sovereign in Revolutionary Virginia, Professor Lowe unpacks the case of Commonwealth v. Crane and what it meant to create a republic of laws and not kings. This case has everything murder, John Marshall, St. George Tucker, Thomas Jefferson, and major questions about American self-government. Dr. Lowe bats cleanup for us on this final episode of our four-part series on early American law. Be sure to check out previous episodes at www.mountvernon.org podcast. And be sure to tune in next week for my chat with Ryan Cole as we trace the rise and fall of light horse Harry Lee. You're moving up in the world. I've
1: had a lot of people say, I bought your book. I know that's... And I'm like, I don't get anything. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, for, for getting the numbers up. Yeah, boost,
0: boost my ratings. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, goodness. Well, I was number one in, um, what was it? Criminal law for about 48 hours. And that was very exciting. Yeah. And then I fell behind. I think that was actually after Annette retweeted an announcement about the book. Uh-huh. Like, I shot up for like for 48 <laughs> hours. And then I fell behind the Illinois Rules of Evidence, and I was like, you can't beat them all.
0: (laughs) But for that brief period of time... Yeah, I took screenshots. You were on top of the world.
1: (laughs) I was like, look at this. And then I fell to two, and then three, and then to eight. And I was like, I think I'm Well,
0: now we're going to get you back on top with this one. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it's very possible.
0: So, uh, I mean, I guess... We'll talk about the book here in a second. Um, But, you know, you're one of those people that has both a J.D., And a Ph.D., and so do you like torturing yourself? Is that, (laughs) that, how did that, so I mean, did you intend to become a lawyer first? Was that your your first idea originally?
1: So that's an interesting question. (laughs) So um, I discovered legal history Mm -hmm. fairly late. Um, I had planned to do a J.D. Ph.D., but I would planned to do it in religious studies. Really? So um, I was an undergraduate here and. At UVA. At UVA. Mm And this is one of the best places in the world for legal history, Mm -hmm. so uh, I should have discovered it then, and I didn't. (laughs) So I had this idea that legal history was just memorizing a bunch of cases. You know, It was like the history of what the Supreme Court has decided. And I was wrong about that. Um, But because of that, uh, when I was here, I was a political and social thought major. Mm -hmm. I took some other history classes. I took some religion classes, because political and social thought was an interdisciplinary major, so you could kind of put together your own program. And um, I never took legal history. So my big interest was in uh, religious ethics and some of the questions that were big at the time uh, about, like, um, First Amendment uh, stuff, religious freedom, cloning had just happened, you know, what were the oh, ethical yeah. implications of that? So it was kind of law-focused a little. Um, but I never, I didn't know anyone who'd done a Ph.D. and a J.D. with history. Mm-hmm. So um, I just didn't think of it as a possibility. And I had this interdisciplinary major So I deferred law school and I went off to Divinity School at Yale and um, then went to law school and by then wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And at law school, I discovered legal history. So it was late um, in the game. This is at Harvard. At Harvard. So it was late in the game and I was a little frustrated because I was a theory person and Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted more discussion of like, where does the law come from? What should it be? And I walked into this legal history class because I had an opening in the schedule taught by Christine Desson at Harvard. And uh, it was a constitutional era legal history class. And I was like, I have finally found my spot. (laughs) This This is is amazing. (laughs) Because the great thing about legal history is it's it's really intellectual history. It's um, the law kind of as a text. It can be done many different ways. But the way I prefer Uh is um, you've got these amazing texts from these moments in time that tell you what people are worried about, um, how they're trying to control their world, how, uh, what their aspirations are, and you can read so much about a moment mm-hmm. from these texts. And then uh, from a law perspective, you can look back and say, well, these rules we've got, if they came from this moment in time, do we really want to keep them? Like maybe we should be aware if this, this is a pro-slavery right. age, uh, uh, rule, like maybe we don't want to have it now. So, um, yeah, so I had not planned to do this, a PhD in history, uh, but I discovered it then, and I had some clerkships lined up, so it gave me a few years to think about it. Like, do I really want to do another degree? Right, right, right. Um, And so then I went back, uh, which is a little different from the people who are in the pipeline now. It's a little more common to do both. And a lot of...
0: Simultaneously?
1: Simultaneously, yeah. So... um, people just slightly maybe behind my cohort. Mm-hmm. There, there are more who are doing the JD and the PhD together. And there are programs now that are structured to let you do that. I
0: see. So, so But the wheels were already sort of turning at that point, and You were thinking about these larger questions. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it, it, is it, am I right in saying that one of the big debates in, in law and legal history is like, so is the law in and of itself kind of a, a eternal holistic thing? Or is it, is it something that is created by people and then reshaped over time? I'm trying to remember the the article that you wrote a couple years ago about sort of the big
1: existential oh, questions yeah. in law,
0: and I'm I'm probably butchering this yeah. completely, but
1: um, that was um, my survey of legal history since 1998. Right, I right, think right, is what that one was um, that somebody had asked me to do. So um, you can do legal history in diff- in various ways. Mm-hmm. So there are people who do more the social history of the law, so how it impacts um, individual communities and. Um, there's a lot of good work on civil rights and lawyers, um, particularly mm-hmm. law on the ground and like how people on the ground can shape what elite law becomes. Uh-huh. Um, that's been one of the big things people have done. Um, there's um, yeah, there's lots of different ways you can you can do legal history, but I think I like to tell my students that it's. I think it's kind of a radical discipline, because <laughs> on the first day, I've, I've told a couple of different classes, we're going to deconstruct everything you do, everything every place else right. here, because um, you come in thinking sometimes law is maybe almost like platonic form, like uh-huh. this is what the law is, or this is what's just, or you take things for granted. That's less so now than when I was in law school, because the critical movement has dug in even more, so uh-huh. it's not quite like that anymore. But there are a lot of things you take for granted, you're just learning the rules, and and in legal history, you kind of step back and say, where do these come mm. from? What do we really think about them? And that's one of the reasons that it appealed to me when I discovered it, because it kind of married the, the um, ethical, um, what should we do with the how did this right. happen? Um, so I think it's a really interesting discipline because it's on the edge of a lot of different different things.
0: So, like, what is you know what is justice? But then, what is
1: mm-hmm. how do
0: people decide what justice is, exactly. and how to you know how to apply it, and how to create laws around it?
1: Exactly. And how have people done this at different points in time? So, um, it can it can provide a lot of hope because it's like look, these are times when people really change things, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it I think it kind of makes you humble because you look back and you say these people are really sure they knew, and actually we look and we can see, look at the eugenics movement or look right. at pro-slavery law or look at um, all these different moments in history where you're like, wow, they were really sure that was just? And mm-hmm. woo, now we know differently. They so knew I what the law was both. with a
0: capital L until yeah. somebody came along and said, well, maybe not.
1: Yeah, and what did it take to get that maybe not? Uh-huh. And then how do you transition into a new era? So, so yeah, I love it because it, it melts this theoretical stuff with... Um, Evidence.
0: So, in in a lot of ways, you're interested in the law, then, and legal history came out of the sort of ethical questions you were wrestling with as a student, uh, you know, here at UVA, and then probably in divinity school as well.
1: Yeah, I think it did. I mean, there, um, I was looking for a way to go deeper with what law was, and um, I remember um, my first my first year evidence course when we talked about the way the different. Evidence rules, and I can't remember what the, what the particular thing was that got me at the time, but I remember thinking, well, why did they take, pick up that rule then? Mm-hmm. Why did that change then? Instead of just learning, well, this is, this is the rule, I wanted to know why mm-hmm. um, and what that told us about maybe how people's ideas of uh, reliability changed in different eras. Um, and I thought, where do you take these questions? <laughs> because right, yeah. I don't know that anybody but me cares. Um, and then I <laughs> discovered this whole other, other world of, of legal history. And I was like, oh, no, I'm actually doing a thing that people do. Yeah.
0: So in, you could have chosen any era you wanted to study, but you decided early America was, in, in the early republic in particular, was the place for you. And so how did you come to that determination you know, as you started your, your fourth degree at that point?
1: That makes me feel tired, <laughs> just you saying that. Um, so how did I decide early in America? Well, um, as an, when I was an undergraduate, I had done this interdisciplinary major, and one of my advisors was Peter Onuf. So I was one of the luckiest undergraduates in the entire world. <laughs> I did that not guy? know nope. it at <laughs> yeah. the time. Um, but uh, the great Jefferson scholar, I'm sure everybody listening to this knows who he is. But mm. no, just in case there's somebody <laughs> out there, I'll, I'll, I'll describe. Um, but I was interested in the moral questions about Jefferson and slavery. Uh, so uh-huh. um, this was, um, should, I, should I give the year away? This was 1997, <laughs> 98. And, um, and this was just before the DNA, DNA testing of Sally Hemings' okay. descendants. Okay. So I was a guide at Monticello, and we were still wrestling with, like, how do we, how do we deal with this? And Annette mm-hmm. Gordon-Reed's book had, first book had just come out, which was just a world changer, right. especially if you were in that. World, and um, I was really wrestling with this question, like what does it mean that Jefferson um, was a slaveholder? What does it mean that he may have fathered these children that I had been told he hadn't because I right. was in the field right yeah, um, and so I was looking at those as moral questions, like what do we want of our leaders? Do we want consistency, mm-hmm. or maybe sometimes consistency isn't a great thing um, so i I had this Kind of background with Peter Onuf, who was lovely and had lunch with me about once a month to talk about my my deep hang-ups with Jefferson. Uh, he called mm-hmm. it Jefferson therapy, <laughs> and um, I was very upset with Jefferson. And so, um, but it was also hi- a hybrid th- thesis again. So right, when I got to right, graduate right. school, I knew I was interested in the history of the South because there are just amazing moral questions that mm-hmm. arise with the history of the South that still linger as we see every day today. Certainly. Um, so. I knew I wanted to do that, and the question was, would it be like a long 19th century project, colonial, and for various reasons I reverted back to my Virginia history training mm-hmm. with, uh, with Peter. So um, I had originally planned a longer arc for what became this book. Um, it, uh, I planned to look at changes in Virginia criminal law from uh, the colonial period through the Civil War, mm-hmm. and I wanted to see how as Virginia got more self-consciously Southern and more pro-slavery, the criminal law changed. Like how did it maybe, what rules maybe reflected this reality on the ground and Mm -hmm. how did this changing reality change criminal law? So that's what I was interested in. And I started reading the first, I mean, I just read through the reports of the cases. No case reports. (laughs) I just, I I had them in front of me and I just flipped through them, which was an idea I got from John Murren at Princeton, who was emeritus when I got there. But he had lunch with a bunch of us, and he talked about reading through, I think it was the Maryland reports. And I thought, that is a fabulous idea. What might you find? So I started reading the Virginia reports, and I stumbled on this one case, Mm -hmm. uh, Commonwealth versus John Crane, and thought, this is a really interesting case. Maybe it will be a paper. So I pitched it as a paper for the McNeil Center, thinking, oh, this is interesting. I'll get one paper out of this. And it became, became my this, whole world. This whole thing. So I, it's, it's kind of funny that as somebody who's interested in really big things, I ended up with a micro history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just, it's just what happened. But you're using that to
0: tell like, a larger story. Mm-hmm, exactly. So I that's a nice little segue to talking about the book. I mean, your book starts very dramatically with a murder mm-hmm. on July the fourth, seventeen ninety one. So fifteen years after independence, mm-hmm. in the Shenandoah Valley, mm-hmm. um, and you know. You know, m- murder podcasts like uh, you know my favorite murder is so hot right now, and so <laughs> this quickly became your favorite murder in a sense, uh-huh. which is sort of weird to describe it that way. But oh um, no, it's
1: definitely that. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: so, but so tell us what happened. So set the, set the scene for us because one of the you, as you just said, this was a very narrow case, but eventually you were able to exploit this into making these larger arguments about the nature of law and sovereignty in Virginia in this period. And so. You know what what happens on in that field on that particular day in in July of 1791.
1: So July 4, 1791, uh, two groups of men were bringing in their wheat harvest mm-hmm. uh, in Shenandoah Valley, just north of Winchester, in what's now the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. Right. So it's now Jefferson County, West Virginia. At that point, it was Berkeley County, Virginia, because mm-hmm. of the way counties gets rearranged. You know, and then, of course, West Virginia being created. So um, these guys are bringing in their wheat harvest. It's two um, landowners and they have other people working for them, mainly local farmers who are pitching in for the day with their labor. There are some enslaved people there as well, I know, but they don't show up well in the records. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things about legal records. You don't always glimpse some of that, but because of the tax records, I know both of these guys involved were slave owners, so I'm assuming um, that the people they owned were out in the fields too. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's late in the evening. There's been some kind of dispute that day, and um, they have words. And the great thing about this case is those words end up preserved in the final case report. Ah. So, um, ultimately, this culminates in a murder and the jury can't decide if the defendant's guilty of murder or manslaughter, so they render what's called a special verdict and they leave the legal decision to the court and record all the facts of this day um, for the court to decide, what are these? Is this murder, is this manslaughter? And that verdict gets repeated in the later court judgments, Mm -hmm. so for me, you know, in whenever I started this in 2008, I guess, um, I'm flipping through the reports and I see this vivid account mm-hmm. of this murder. So this is where these are where these facts basically come from. So these guys are uh, these guys have some words and um, they yell some really colorful things, <laughs> which I don't know that I'll give away. <laughs> right, yeah. But um, the, the verdict, it, the story escalates. They rip off their shirts to fight. Um, one man's wife comes down and yells something very inflammatory mm-hmm. um, at her husband who's about to fight. She yells, Mr. Crane, I'm surprised you would demean yourself to fight with such a set of Negrofied puppies. Wow. And for anyone who's followed Joanne Freeman's work, you know that puppies is like the pretty much the worst thing you can say to anybody. Right, if you right. want to fight, you call somebody a puppy. And she adds this horrific modifier to this. Mm-hmm and uh, shames all these men for working in the fields, um, these f- local landowners. Basically, local. saying
0: you're the same sl- status as yeah, a slave at this and,
1: point. And everything explodes. And so um, they fight. There are a couple men fighting at one time. The melee clears, and boom, somebody's stabbed. This young laborer named Abraham Van Horn, who drove a wagon for a living. And he's cr- he yells something like, stop, my guts are cut out. Yikes. And, um, and he dies two days later because uh, a gut wound is not an easily healed wound yeah, <laughs> in the right, 18th that's... century, right? So um, he dies a couple days later, and John Crane, who's one of these two local landowners, is charged with his murder. And so what my book does is follow the trajectory of the case through the courts and uses it to look at this moment in Virginia, this mm-hmm. moment in criminal law um, where they're trying to figure out what does it mean to have a republic? What does it mean for equality? And what does it mean for equality before the law, mm-hmm. particularly in criminal cases where um, criminal law has been like the object of the sovereign like, it's been the sovereign acting out the sovereign's power on the criminal right. now if we're all citizens and we're equal, what's that going to look like
0: right the, in the colonial period the king is the fountain of justice, but now the people are exactly. what, what does that mean mm-hmm. and so how many how many stages of the, the court system does this go through? I mean where does it start and then where does it end and what what in what, uh, in what different courts do you trace this case?
1: Yeah, so uh, it begins with the fight, and then it, um, unfortunately, the coroner's records no longer exist. The coroner's inquest would have been the oh. first mm-hmm. stage, uh, and I looked and looked, because in Virginia, lots of things get saved, which is one of the beautiful things about certain types of Virginia history. Yeah. Some things get burned during the Civil War, but there are other things that survive, and I had the feeling these existed in the 50s because 1950s, because there's a footnote and a local history and I just, nobody just, could find them. It's him. just it's disappeared. One of these things. But it starts with the coroner's court where, where the inquest find, finds Crane guilty of murder. Then it moves to the county court, which is at this time every um, Virginia county has its county court. They trace way back to colonial times. Mm-hmm. And the, the justices of the peace get to decide, um, are we going to send this person on for trial in the state courts or are we going to let them go? So it's kind of a hearing of sorts. It's called the examination. And so Cranes, kept in the jail for a couple days, brought before the county justices of the peace, and they decide um, to charge him with murder. And they send him on to the Virginia state court system, which is new at this point. Virginia's just reformed its courts. So in the colonial period, all these felonies are tried at the general court in Williamsburg, which Uh is the governor's council, basically, sitting as a court. And um, that... They do a lot of changes at the revolution, but the courts are one of these things they argue a lot about, and they try some different things. Um, And in just a couple years before Crane's case, they've created local district courts where the judges of the general court have to ride on circuit around the Commonwealth. The judges don't love this. Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) I wonder why. Yeah, (laughs) so the good thing about it, if you're a local person, is you're no longer – having all your cases have to go to the Capitol, right. which by then is at least Richmond, but yeah. it's still a ways. So you're not having to transport your witnesses and everything.
0: Especially in those days, you know, coming from Winchester, you're, that's quite a haul still. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite a haul right now. truth. <laughs> but if no, you're
1: a judge, yeah. then and the judge in Crane's case is St. George Tucker, who's the foremost commentator on the law until about 1830, yeah, professor no, at William & Mary. No slouch. No slouch. Um, student of George Wythe. Um, Tucker has to do the circuit that takes him up all the way up to modern-day Morgantown. So, okay. I mean, this guy's gone for a long time. And he's gone so long that his daughter starts calling the children's tutor Papa. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's, very it's, sad. it's terrible. So they shift the burden of this travel, which they're still making people do. They just yeah. put it all on the judge instead of on the local people. So the case goes, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but right. it, it goes to the state court trial and then the aftermath, and, um, and there are a lot of colorful people who show up, including some famous ones, like John Marshall, who's one of Crane's lawyers. Right. John Marshall
0: is involved in this thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Charles Lee, the later attorney general, who's uh-huh. one of Crane's lawyers, St. George Tucker, uh, Daniel Morgan, the revolutionary general, is the right. foreman of Crane's grand jury i um, trying to think who else. And then a couple later governors of Ohio turn out to have been, uh, Worthington and Tiffin, Turn out to have been family friends of the Cranes. So it's, uh, this is one of the things that drew me to the case. When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, these are a bunch of guys fighting in what's now West mm-hmm. Virginia. This is, looks like a pretty typical Western fight. There's a lot of fighting in Virginia yeah. this time. And then as I researched who this John Crane was for what I thought was a single paper I was going to do on mm-hmm. this case, I realized he was actually um, connected to some very powerful Virginia families. His own family was quite well off and mm-hmm. well connected, and that all of these characters I right. knew were showing up in and his so
0: case. So you start seeing Marshall and St. George Tucker, and then it, and you know they've all got connections to with. And good lord, it's like 27 Yankees
1: are involved in this case. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's this exactly. So it's what seems like this at first obscure case in the reporter, and then as I go through, I realize all the people who are thinking about what does it mean to have law in a republic, a lot of those people are involved in this case. They're the ones that
0: are figuring this out. Yeah, you know, what are what are some of the things that people like Marshall and St. George Tucker and you know Tiffin and all these guys are bringing to the table uh, to this case that sort of helps helps you tell this larger story about what it means for the law to be sovereign in the early republic and how, you know, Virginians are trying to figure this out.
1: So they bring different things to the case. Um, so somebody like Tucker is, of course, the judge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's he's one of the two main threads in the book. The one thread is this, the progress of the case. The other thread is this man, St. George Tucker, who I think deserves a lot more Study than he has gotten. He's gotten some. Right. I mean, people know who he is. Lawyers like to cite him because he has—he wrote the first American commentary mm-hmm. on Blackstone, um, or edited Blackstone for America, and it, it's a—it's the way a lot of people learn law in the early Republic. Right. And so, when we're thinking about the meaning of the Constitution at the time of the founding, lots of lawyers like to draw on Tucker. So people kind of know who he is. He's got a house at Colonial Williamsburg. If you. If you uh, pay a certain amount of money, you can you can go in and, and look around. It's reserved. It's not. It's oh, partly public, part not, partly not. It's
0: on the special tour. It's on the
1: special tour. But uh, So his house is still there. It's got a ton of archives at William & Mary. So there's a lot to work from, but um, he hasn't gotten a lot of his own attention. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in giving Tucker a little more of a spotlight, uh-huh. and he's important to the story because... He is a member of the Revisal Council for the Revisal of the Laws in Virginia at the very moment that Crane's case is going on. He's also writing his edition of Blackstone's mm-hmm. Commentaries, and he's teaching law students at William and & Mary, and he's got these great lectures where he's actually talking with them about what does it mean? Right. What does all this mean? We've got a constitution. This is 1791. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like right away, nobody knows what this is going to mean, and so he's lecturing the students, well, this might mean this, or, or people say who were there say it might mean this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a pretty um, deep thinking guy. So, so Tucker is, kind of, is, I think, a perfect uh, site for thinking about um, this moment of mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out Republicanism, Republican law.
0: So he's writing he's mm-hmm. the circuit in part, and it's a product of his own creation in some ways. Because uh, he's on the revising committee to do the you know the laws and whatnot. Yeah, so correct?
1: so he's... I don't think he's involved in that particular bill. He's appointed um, right around the time that they pass the district court oh, bill. okay. So I don't think he's... He's appointed... Well, the, the revisal of the law in Virginia goes through several stages. They keep trying to fix the law. Nobody <laughs> wants to do it.
0: Nobody wants to do it. So
1: <laughs> the for, the only person who wanted to do it was Jefferson. Right. So, he was
0: very keen to do yeah, that Yeah, so this
1: is a chapter in the book. So he finishes the Declaration of Independence, he comes home to Virginia, and he says the whole object of the present, con- pre- present controversy is this creating a Republican form of government. So he's interested in the cons- Virginia Constitution, uh-huh. he writes a draft for that, he, um, and he wants to revise the whole code um, to make it compatible with this new reality of Republican government. Mm-hmm. So he writes all of these bills, and we're, we're aware of some of them, like the um, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom or the uh, bill abolishing primogeniture and entail. Uh-huh. Those are probably the two most famous. But the centerpiece of the revisal is actually his bill to reform the criminal law. Oh, I see. And so he writes these things, and then James Madison presents them in the 1780s after the war when they're resurrecting the revisal. They Why revise the laws? Well, because... We used to be Britain, and now we're not. Right. So you know, it's this moment where everybody thinks they're going to create the world anew, mm-hmm. to use mm-hmm. the famous phrase, and and so it's this great blank slate opportunity they think, and so some of these bills get passed, some of them don't. The criminal law bill fails, and so the law is partly reformed, partly not. And in 17 early 1790s, they try again. Right. Edmund Randolph has been doing it. He's now um, got a federal appointment. He's leaving. And he's he's saying he he's recruits people and nobody wants to do it except St. George Tucker, who's like this sounds great, and so <laughs> he because this is right up his alley, yeah. and so he's meeting with the revisers in the summer of seventeen ninety one as John Crane oh, okay. is being uh, as being a we would say arraigned. That's that's anachronistic, but as he's being presented and examined mm-hmm. for. Abraham Van Horn, the victim's murder, but
0: he's still neck deep in all this stuff. And mm-hmm. he said he's he's writing the commentaries on the co- you know Blackstone's mm-hmm. commentaries. So they're trying to figure out, okay, we're in we you know we're a common law society, but RLLRs sort of look English. How do we make them more Republican?
1: Yeah, exactly. What and what does that even mean? I mean, what that's what that they're trying mean? to figure yeah. out. So a couple of the bills, like some of the land reform that goes through, that we all know about, and um, great work's been done on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Jefferson's Bill Abolishing primogeniture and Entail, by, by John Crane's moment, people don't like those bills very much <laughs> because they've passed this land reform, and there's no, there are no cases that explicate what this means. Yeah,
0: they don't know so, how to proceed.
1: So there, there are no precedents. So there's these bills, and people are looking at these bills like, well, there's no precedents. We don't know what these mean. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of emblematic of this moment in America where on one hand they want to create the world anew, and on the other hand, we're used to common law system. Mm-hmm. We're, we're basically run by lawyers yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are trained in that system. And there's a reason those systems have some good things about them, because there's yeah. certainty. So is it more Republican to create the world anew or to have certainty where people know mm-hmm. what's going to happen because you've done this for a long time? And so I think they settle that in various ways. Uh, Tucker settles it eventually by saying, we keep the common law, but we'll... Will um, have reception statutes that say, "Hey, we're going to keep the common law." Yeah. So now it's come through the legislature. So now it's Republican. <laughs>
0: yeah. So now we've codified it, but we're yeah. s- still the sort of the same thing in yeah. some ways. Yeah. So and how is Marshall coming at it? Because he's you know he's wrestling with sort of the same things, and then later when he's Chief Justice, mm-hmm. you know he has to deal with a lot of. of of cases that are wrestling with the question of you know the you know the reception of common law mm-hmm. in America and
1: mm-hmm. what does
0: it mean to be Republican and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: So Marshall is a shadowy figure in this book Ooh. because uh, <laughs> he represents Crane at the appellate stage, and I'll give that much away. Yeah. And he um, there aren't any documents, so I could I found that he charged Crane for murder. Uh, he mm-hmm. charged him a fee for representing him. And I found one document that he wrote uh, for the Crane family, so I knew he represented him, uh, but there are no other records from that stage because the general court records were burned Mm -hmm. later. So um, the ones that exist tend to come from St. George Tucker's reports of his cases he he sat in on, and that session he missed. So he was the district court tra- judge, <laughs> and then he went on his honeymoon, which is very inconvenient for me.
0: That is convenient. I mean, good for him, but, you know. Inconvenient th- un- for unfortunate me. Unfortunate for you. Um,
1: so so how, how John Marshall does um, uh, work in, in this is in the larger trajectory of uh-huh. Virginia law. Um, there isn't a lot of distance between him and Tucker, and Tucker is generally seen as the... Jeffersonian commentator on the law and Marshall of course is John Marshall the Federalist mm-hmm. and so when legal historians look at this we tend to think of Marshall as allied with New England he has more New Englandish ideas of law and what you find when you look at actually Virginia law in the 1790s he and Tucker they work a lot together right. they're both big proponents of judicial review so when John Marshall um, pronounces Marbury versus Madison, he's doing something he and Tucker already did in Virginia a couple years earlier. Okay. So Marshall, in my view, is pretty mainstream in Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's just later after the Jeffersonian uh, kind of takeover. Uh, retrospectively, we view some stuff differently, but Marshall's, Marshall's a Virginia lawyer, and he's a mm-hmm. really good one, and we see a real tradition of a certain type of Virginia law coming out in his jurisprudence list. So so Virginia at this moment, so sometimes people ask me, um, why Virginia? So yeah. you've written this book about a Virginia case, like why Virginia? So I'll
0: ask you, <laughs> why Virginia? Why a Virginia case?
1: So um, sometimes people ask, is it just because you worked there or because you went there? Yeah. Like, what? why Virginia? And Virginia at this moment is the most important state um, in the union. It's the biggest. It's mm-hmm. the... And it's the one that will basically staff the federal government. Like, I know this is the right. moment of Hamilton, but yeah. really, if we're going to be honest, <laughs> and I'm not at all biased yeah. as a sometimes Jefferson scholar.
0: You do like the musical, but, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um,
1: this is the moment where Virginia, by virtue of its wealth, its status, its size, and the really deep legal training, uh-huh. thanks to George Wythe, right. um, uh, because of that, Virginians are going to basically take over the federal government. So, you know, we've been talking about all these famous people who happen to show up in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they're, they're big Virginia lawyers who got paid money to represent the son of a leading family in a criminal case. Um, what's significant about that is that these leading Virginia lawyers be, all become big on the national stage because of who, what Virginia is and what mm-hmm. it's going to do to shape the new nation. So whether it's... Um, you know Charles Lee becoming Attorney General, John Marshall becoming Chief Justice, and shaping all that jurisprudence. Whether it's Tucker's law book becoming the um, the book everyone learns law from for years yeah. and the 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 reference point. Um, whether it's Jefferson who makes a little bit of an appearance vicariously, he's not actually in the case, <laughs> but because of his law reform work, he works, just sort, he sort shows of pops up, up there. He is, God have Hi. him <laughs> because of his uh, presidency and I mean, by the time you get to 1800 you've he's reshaping things too in a different mm-hmm. way than some of these other Virginians we've just talked about but Virginia is going to provide um, the polls yeah <laughs> if you're thinking Marshall and Jefferson mm-hmm. Virginia's kind of providing who are cousins by the way um, they're and gonna, hate each other and hate each other um, they're going to provide kind of the polls for the debate in the early Republic so so this is a Virginian case, but it's also, in a way, a microcosm uh-huh. of what's going to become American legal culture. So
0: in a lot of ways, then we, maybe it shouldn't surprise us that all these guys show up because they are, you know, at the center of this reform movement in the first place. But as you say, you know, they're all associated with, width. they're all, you know, very, very um, diligently trained in English common law, and they but they're thinking about how to Republicanize that common law, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's no surprise that, that you've got the heavy hitters that are just sort of there unexpectedly mm-hmm. on a case that's far away from
1: mm-hmm.
0: Richmond or the confines of Williamsburg where they learned mm-hmm. all this material.
1: Yeah, and Virginia is legally very interesting, too, because it, um, so it sends a lot of people in the colonial period, a lot of the planter sons mm-hmm. to England to learn law. Oh, to the ends of court. So, to the ends of court. So they come back, and they often go back to their plantations. They sit on the county court... So the county courts in this period, they're not normally legally trained. They're justices of the peace. They're local landowners who who have a lot of power, and then they have this kind of prerogative court where people show up and they make decisions. But in Virginia, a lot of those guys, or at least a decent proportion, are legally trained. They're
0: legally trained. So
1: that changes things a little bit. Then you get into the late colonial period, and you've got George Wythe in Williamsburg, uh-huh. who's training... Uh, training students, and in a time where people in America would learn by sitting in a law office and just observing some stuff and doing drudgery, yeah. um, With is a teacher, and so he's holding moot courts, and he's sending his students to the general court to listen to cases. Mm-hmm. So they're really being trained, and then his students are this next generation, who um, who then shape the and new. Like Republic. federating
0: that out, so mm-hmm. they all. He says, "All right, here, here's here's Edward Cook." read this until your eyes bleed and then they do and then then you know the, from there they go out and yeah. train the next generation.
1: Yeah. He's He is a fascinating person too who deserves more study.
0: Well, it, not least because he's murdered himself, right? He is. Yes. <laughs> there's just there's mm-hmm. murder everywhere. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a
1: that's a great murder book there. yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> the one on yeah. one. um is it called I am murdered? I think is the title of it, but it's Yeah, and about, I think that's the
0: phrase he utters, mm-hmm, right, when he yeah. realizes he's been poisoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so how, So you, the, the genesis of this case was a case report that you read through, but then presumably you had to go find evidence elsewhere. And so where, where did this project take you to flesh out the bones?
1: So this project took me everywhere, <laughs> it felt like. Um, everywhere on the ground. So I read the case report, and the first thing I did was go to Berkeley County Historical Society uh-huh. and where they've for, they, have for years, had a really wonderful local historian slash archivist who amassed amazing collections of things that were helpful to me in this, the late Don Wood. Um, hmm. So I went to, to Berkeley County. I used some of their files. I tried to figure out who these names were in this case, Uh, The Library of Virginia um, found the case file for me, which included not a lot, but it had the indictment, Mm -hmm. it had some summons, and it had a list of the grand jurors, or a list of the jurors. Um, Maybe the grand jurors as well. I'd have to look at that. But uh, then I went to Berkeley County, and I tried to figure out who these people were. And that's how I discovered this wasn't just a bunch of, you know, small farmers fighting. Mm -hmm. Because as I went through tax records, I realized John Crane was the son of the former deputy sheriff, and that his grandfather had been a justice of the peace in Spotsylvania County. They were friends with the Washington family, and his father had been a first trustee of Charlestown, um, founded by Charles Washington, on his Berkeley County lands. Oh, okay. And I figured out that John Crane's wife was Catherine Whiting, who was related to the biggest landowners in the county, and the Whitings are also one of the kind of, quote, council families of the colonial era. Mm-hmm. They're one of the small group of families that controls the Virginia council. So these were were pretty uh, well-connected and wealthy people. And then I wondered, well, if that's it, why is this guy farming on 200 acres <laughs> yeah. in Berkeley County? Like, yeah. what happened to these people? Yeah. And so uh, I thought surely this isn't the same family. When I looked at his father's tax, return, tax returns, tax records, and um, that's what got me interested because it became a mystery for me mm-hmm. as well as a mystery in the case. Yeah. So as I as I started tracing it, I went to all sorts of different places. Um, I went to the Hanley Library. I found the actual field uh, where the where the fight took place. Uh, and
0: it's still a field. Uh, it's
1: the, if I was right on my land reading of the maps. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's still a field, and um, some of these some of the folks in the case because. This was a pretty fancy grand jury and a pretty fancy jury Uh people a lot of times virginia juries aren't great at this time this is a pretty good one because of who's on trial so a lot of i think dad's friends end up on the jury and then maybe some people who who just are important enough people to sit on this important case a lot of
0: social politics a lot of social
1: politics to this so um some of them still have houses that are museums um so it was just really fun so I got to do that. I met some descendants in the course of this. Um, I, maybe I won't out them <laughs> since it's say. a murder case on, on a podcast. <laughs> maybe I won't do that. Yeah. But I met a, a descendant of Crane's uh, who was really helpful, a descendant of his brother's who was a, is a judge uh, in West Virginia. Today. Is a judge now. Mm-hmm. Or is retired now, but he, he offered me some thoughts about the Crane family. And um, yeah, just met a lot of interesting people to archives in Charleston, West Virginia. UVA archives um, some stuff in DC. Uh, yeah, it kind of took me all over. And Tucker, of course, is from starts in Bermuda. He's a native of Bermuda. That,
0: that's right. Yeah. So.
1: Um, and
0: you've got a, a, there's a por- is there a portrait of him in your book, right? And that there came is. from was it, uh, it came mm-hmm. from Hamilton down there?
1: It came yes, it yeah. came from Bermuda. And um, I wanted that particular one because it's more the age. That's the age of range. He been. There's a there's a more popular one people use, but it's much later. Yeah. And I wanted to give a sense of. Who he was in his late 30s, sitting on this case, mm-hmm. um, who he really was, new judge, um, who of Tucker at this moment. so yeah. yeah, so they were kind enough to let me use that portrait. and I didn't get to take a research trip to Bermuda, and because it wasn't really that relevant yeah. because all the, a lot of the papers are in <laughs> Williamsburg. Yeah. Um, that's one of my regrets right, right. <laughs> that I didn't find a way to swing that. Well,
0: you know, you should go on a book tour to Bermuda. Well, that's,
1: I think that's a great idea. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know how many square square miles the island is, but you know, I'm sure there's a few, certainly a few exactly. libraries and, na- and you know, talk about the native sun, I'm sure they'd exactly. be delighted. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, and so um, you know, the book is out. It just came out. Uh, was it about three or four months ago? Is that right?
1: Yes. Uh, end of March.
0: End of March. And so, you're probably thinking about what's next? And so do you have a sense of, of what's next on the research horizon and what interests you or excites you at the moment?
1: So uh, I'm, you talked at the beginning about being a glutton for punishment with the mm-hmm. JD, PhD. Well, here we go. I had two projects going <laughs> at the same time. So since about 2010, I've also been working on this other project that's um, sort of about uh, pulling together theology and jurisprudence in American history, and particularly it looks at the rise of slave-holding theology, pro-slavery theology Mm -hmm. in the mid-19th century, and how that affects Southern jurisprudence. So, um, what I've been doing uh, recently is looking at citations to the Bible and to moral law, fundamental law, Mm -hmm. stuff like that in American court cases, and trying to chart how Willingness to go extra textual <laughs> changes yeah. as the slavery issue changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you're um, talking
0: about, so as they transition from a, you know, the idea of a necessary evil to a positive good, we're exactly. trying to track that through jurisprudence and, and, and you, know, you say, biblical citations and things of that nature.
1: Exactly. So, you know, in the Revolutionary Era, moral law, you know, people tend to think that, they, like, this is sort of like the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, freedom. You know. yeah. And um, and by the abolitionists, of course, like run with that too. Yeah. But the um, early on in Southern court cases, slaveholders are kind of like, don't bring your moral law in here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we don't want to hear it. Um, and then by the time you get to the 1840s, 50s, 60s, they're v- much more willing to cite mm-hmm. um, a- as. Christianity, ex- especially, has become um, pro-slavery, right. rendered as pro-slavery in the South. Especially so, the Old
0: Testament stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, bringing that in.
1: So, um, and you see it a lot. Um, gets cited a lot when they talk about marriage too. It also comes in in other ways, but, but yeah. So right now this is, I, I've now gone to a bit back to my big arc, <laughs> uh-huh.
0: right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. Which is
1: looking at a lot of cases over time, um, and seeing how they change uh, as society changes. So,
0: cool. And you yeah. say you got you've got another one going, or is this this? This was, is the other one. Oh, so, so you're going. It was going concurrently. This was
1: this was going concurrently. I got the idea in about 2010, and had that moment every grad student dreads, where you're like, oh, what do I do? Yeah. I'll which do way it. should I go? Which way should I go? And so I just set this one aside, and did a fellowship um, at the Center for Theological Inquiry, Inquiry in Princeton, which generously funded me for a year mm-hmm. in 2014-15 um, to work on this. Cool. So it's exciting once this book, is, this book is now out and I get to yeah. finish the other one and, uh, and clear off the deck yeah. Clear the deck list. and figure out where to exactly. go from there. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Professor Lowe, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you for having me. Sure.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.